Hello there, and welcome to Dragons on the Table. Today we will be recapping the final session for the Far Enough Entertainers finale. <clears throat> we picked up by jumping into another door. This one had four statues in the corner, a force field surrounding a large platform in the middle. On top of this platform was a devil with a set of bagpipes and another one of the gems. This gem was pink. Instantly, everybody assumed that this had something to do with Yvelda due to the bagpipes. They examined one of the statues, the nearest one, and all the while just being watched by the devil. He made no move. He simply watched them from behind the force field. They examined the statues and soon began to clue in that they were all identical statues of the Jolly Barmaid. This goes way back to a small side quest, and I don't even really remember how it started. Something to do with Bob and an old bard named the Jolly Barmaid and finding this. Oh, it was to, it was for Gab. That's right. Gab, his uh, little uh, sentient bag of holding that was really grumpy. Anyway, so this was this is an important part for the party, and obviously another way in which the seed was shaping the battlefield in their favor. They just had to figure out how exactly this was supposed to help them. They also were attacked by shadow demons. Now, shadow demons for these guys at level 20 are no problem. I think maybe only twice in the many, many attacks that... Uh, were launched at them. Maybe two hit. I think they were both Zixia. <laughs> Which was not intentional. And I think that only happened after I doubled their attack bonus. Which was for the final round. I'll get to that in a minute. So Shadow Demon set upon them. And they eliminate all of them. And the devil in the middle just starts slow clapping in a mocking fashion mocking them that this is the, all the best heroes the world could send to save the seed and that kind of got their goat a little bit and he just summoned more shadow demons and so they started fighting them again and realizing they had to figure out something they figured it had to do something with Yvelda uh, Cafe tried passing through the forest field couldn't do it and then I made the mistake of allowing his sword to pass through. I was trying to illustrate that it would stop people from passing through to maybe hint that only one person could pass through. This entire time, Yvelda was the only one who was able to pass through the force field. And they uh, they weren't cluing into that. As soon as Cafe couldn't get through, they just assumed nobody could get through. And I that was on me. I should have realized that that was going to be the inference that they concluded is that the right way to say it? I don't know if that's the right way of saying that anyway you get what I mean so they decided that the forest field wouldn't let anybody through so they examined the statues again kind of in the middle of the fighting and saw that each of the statues had a verse from the jolly barmaid which I guess now it's canonical that there are four verses of the song they also found a different instrument on 
kind of at the, the feet of each of the statues. So they figured they had to play. Now, originally, all that this would do... Oh my gosh, I hate chickens. Be quiet! Anyway. Oh my gosh. I've got to move those chickens. Anyway. All that playing the instrument was supposed to do was it was supposed to take away the devil's ability to perform reactions. Which it did. Um, they never realized that he had a reaction to block Yavelda's bagpipes every turn. Because they just they, they got to that point. They, they were playing. They, they found these things. They knew they had to play. And they just played with abandon. They, they played through... All of the verses in sequence, which I originally didn't have planned to do anything. I was just like, they were just supposed to be there, that they had to play the song. Somebody had to be playing every round in order to block the devil's uh, reactions so that Yvelda could actually get inside and land a hit. But that didn't, yeah, that wasn't the case. Instead, they played the song, and I had the Jolly Barmaid tell Yvelda to that it was time for her to step through the barrier and to face her destiny, which was really just my way of saying, Yvelda, you're the only one who can get in there. This this is your battlefield. This is the one with your name all over it, so you have to go in and fight. I, go, go, go. I'm going to keep sending shadow demons, and this is going to take forever, and we're, gonna try, we're trying to end this campaign tonight, so get in there. That's what that translated to. So she does. She goes in and she starts dueling bagpipes with this devil. Um, and Bob keeps playing. Uh, Cafe was kind of nearby defending him, keeping Shadow Demons off, and he kept playing. I had them do performance checks. They had to make a DC of 10 with their performance. Bob, being a level 20 paladin, was able to hit that every time. Zixia would also, she was over kind of on the opposite corner. She was also trying to play. I don't think she ever got higher than 8 on her performance checks which was hilarious. So it was Bob. He kept playing. He just played every round. They weren't entirely sure they knew what was going on. They knew that a kind of uh, golden light would kind of encrust the devil. They had no idea that it was stopping him taking reactions. So, so Yavella just kept blasting him with her bagpipes and whittling them down. And eventually they defeated him. The shadow demons disappeared. The force field disappeared. They picked up the gem. They were done. And I just thought it was a fun tribute. I mean, it's been the running joke through the campaign that I should have never given Yvelda those bagpipes. And I probably shouldn't have. Looking back now, though, and this is one big thought that I had from the entire campaign. You know, this is my first campaign. It was totally broken, and I had so many frustrations with that brokenness. But I started thinking as we went through, truth be told, that was part of what made this campaign memorable, was all of my mistakes as a DM. And that's going to be hard to swallow and remember in the moment for my next campaign because I know there's going to be some and I've been really excited thinking that this next campaign will have no mistakes in it or that you know it will be so much more balanced and it'll be so much more fun but the truth is this campaign was fun and it was partly fun because of all the things that I did wrong like giving these people super overpowered weapons and I think that this particular battle was at, at least a subconscious reflection of that acceptance you know, Yvelda, I basically stole her identity as a bard and just made her the person with the really overpowered bagpipes. And she was fine with that. Everybody was fine with that. I was the only one not fine with that. 
And the truth be told, that seems to often be my problem as the DM. I am the only one not fine with something. And it's, it's hard when you put all this work and effort into something. I've said this a million times, you know, and it doesn't quite go the way you hoped. You don't quite get the payoff you were going for. But as long as everybody's having fun, that's what really matters. Yourself included. So it shouldn't necessarily always be that way. Because I think if it's always that way where everything you do goes wrong or, you know, it's just all those mistakes and you never get what you came to for, came to D&D for, then, then it's not going to be fun for you as the DM and something does need to change. But that's probably a better situation than you're having lots of fun and your players aren't having any fun. So, so this is a little bit of a, a nod to to that particular mistake, that kind of, that thing that identified Yvelda. And I'll part, I'll part the curtain on this a little prematurely. All of these rooms were supposed to be a nod to something that identified each of the players. Each room was dedicated to one of them. You know, what, I, I, I can, break, I'll break them down when we get through the last one uh, and talk about that before the finale. But that was, that was the purpose behind them. So they came out, they had one more of the normal doors before they had to go through the final door. Which one was it? Oh, that's right. It was on Aeolus. So they walk in, and it's kind of like this weird floating peace sign. This was the last room that I designed, and I was super out of creative juice at this point. Uh, plus, on Aeole, he he was a really complicated character, and he was probably a character that I had the hardest time wrapping my head around <laughs> But I knew the big thing for Brandt was it was a he was a balanced character. He was torn between the light and the dark. And he was kind of going towards one or the other. And so that was um that was kind of what I, I went for. You know, I had a big yin and yang sign. Did I say peace sign? I meant a yin and yang sign there. And there were two giants that they activated. They activated by finding Aneole's fish puppet which was a huge giveaway that this room was dedicated to Aniole. And the fish puppet uh, turned into the gem after they defeated these two storm giants. That was an interesting fight. They'd managed to defeat one. The storm giants had this really awesome lightning attack that I only got to use once because they polymorphed one of the other giants, quickly becoming one of my least favorite spells. Because... <laughs> It's just so powerful, you know, to drop the big bad to, I think in this case they turned him into a chinchilla. Anyway, the giants have a plus 10 to their wisdom saves, which really only like a level 17 and up player would have a chance of beating that, which is, of course, the case. So uh, Cole cast Polymorph on both of them. And one of them failed, one of them saved. So they defeated the other one and put the other one in a bag. They defeated the one that didn't save, they put the one... No, ah, let me try that again. They put the one... They defeated the one that did save, and they put the one that didn't, which is now a chinchilla, into a bag. Their plan was to shove it down the throat of the big bad. I started thinking about that, that that was just way overpowered and quickly was googling it in the background like is this a legit move can this happen is there some sage advice on it sage advice is my authority i don't really like if it's anything else if it's reddit anything else i take it with a huge grain of salt and make my own ruling i couldn't find anything saying talking about 
how that worked. So I came up with an idea in my mind to sort of nerf that battle plan. Yes, it was a really creative thing, and yes, I was kind of taking away their creativity and using the game mechanics, but I felt like if I said yes to this one, it would just be their go-to, because they'd used it so many times, polymorphing people. It was just going to be their, their go-to through through on out, going forward and I don't want that I don't want my players to just have one move that was my big problem with the bagpipes is there's just it was just the one thing Yvelda did and she didn't ever need to use very many of her other abilities until she got really high level she had higher level spells than what the bagpipes did so for a long time that's all she did and she was fine with that but for me as a DM at least that makes a really boring campaign when that's the only thing you do so I didn't want that I didn't want there to be a way to just kill the big bad every time. So I started thinking about, okay, what would be a fair way to nerf that? And is there a believable way to nerf that? I'll get to, I'll get to what happened with that later. So they get the last gem, and they come back out into the room. So at this point, they clued in that each of the rooms represented one of the players. And they were able to kind of guess which what each of those rooms were and I will kind of go through them in order so the first room that they went into was the swamp room and they clued in that that was cafe two reasons it was a swampy room swamp area which is cafe is from the swamp and two it was fighting undead which is cafe's favorite enemy the next room um, okay, pulling up my notes so I can remember what it is. Do, 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 the final level, final level. Here we go. So the next room they went into was, I think, Bob's? Yeah, I think it was Bob's room, which was the Paladin Shrine. And that room was dedicated to Bob because that's where he found the Sword of Truth. The Sword of Truth was definitely a huge defining thing for his character for a big part of the campaign. After that, they went to Zixia's room, which was a pretty easy one to clue in. It was the trial of Aowa, and where I was expecting Zixia to cure Nikoe of vampirism again, but she didn't, and I had a plan for that. I had a backup plan. I'm getting better at having two plans for things. Like players could likely do this or they'll likely do this. And if they don't do either of those, then we'll do this type of thing. Let's see here. After that, they went into Cole's room, I believe, which was the rocky ocean area. And they fought those big, um, sorry, it's my birthday today, and I'm getting tons of notifications on my phone. Even though it's on vibrate, hopefully you can't hear it vibrating like... I, I shouldn't say it like crazy. I've gotten like three in the time that I recorded this. Um, so yeah, Facebook is just like, hey, somebody said happy birthday. Thank you. When you have lots of family, you get lots of notifications. Anyway, so that one was Cole's. And I also uh, was attempting with this campaign. I was following the Dungeon Master's instructions on how to make balanced campaigns so every encounter is either easy medium hard or deadly based on the experience points and a couple of modifiers depending on the number of enemies 
And you can, can calculate all that by hand, or you can use a tool online called Kabul's Fight Club, which is what I used. Uh, the Dungeons Master's Guide also says that a player's party can usually handle six to eight, or about eight uh, medium to hard encounters in a day. Now, I put in two easy encounters, and I had one deadly encounter thinking that it would kind of balance out. It says if you have deadly encounters, they can handle less. If you have easy encounters, they can handle more. That about eight medium to hard encounters between a long rest. And so that's what I calculated this campaign to be. It was partly a test. Not a very good test for level 20 because by the time you get to level 20, everything's wacky. And I think this is going to be normal. Like, even though this was my first campaign, the fact that there were broken mechanics in here, broken magic items, and just things like that, I'm starting to wonder if that's just standard. Like, that's just kind of how it's always going to be. You're never going to have a perfectly vanilla level 20 character. Unless you're a really by-the-book DM, which I'm not. I try to be, but my heart carries me into creative uh, realms and I end up making up crap that's kind of on the spot that often breaks the game but it felt good in the moment it's my motto anyway so that this whole encounter I was using so the, the question was who gets the medium encounters who gets the hard encounters who gets the easy encounters so I wanted to have the rule players of the party, in this case, uh, Zixia, Yvelda, uh, they got the easy encounters, and those encounters were supposed to be focused more on role-playing. There was actually a chance to convince the devil to just give the gem. He didn't want to be there. He wanted to be on the surface. I didn't illustrate that well enough. Uh, in the moment, I was kind of flustered because they... Yvelda had it walked through the barrier, and so I was trying to figure out, okay, how do we get this done in a timely manner? How do we, you know, how, how do I hint to them what the right answer is without sounding like I'm just giving it to them? So I was trying to just get Yvelda into the barrier, and I didn't focus enough on the role-playing part of it. I'm also learning about myself that I have to kind of, like, get into the mood a little bit with D&D that like when I just sit down even though I've been thinking about D&D all day while working or whatever that to actually like role play and improvise I I usually fluster a little bit at the beginning and I don't come I kind of as the session goes on I get a little bit better improvising and role playing the characters and all that so I need to find a way to get myself into the mindset ahead of time anyway so, Yveldas was more of a role-playing encounter. Zixias was more of a role-playing encounter. Both of them just kind of turned out to be a fight, but the encounter was easy because I know that Zixia and Yvelda, they don't necessarily love fighting as much as some of the other characters. Uh, Bob, Cole, these were hard encounters because I know they really like combat. They really like a good fight. Cafes, I think, was also a hard encounter. I don't remember exactly. I'm looking don't see. Uh, Aneoles was more of a medium encounter. He really liked fighting things too, but he was dead. Anyway, I had to have some of the medium encounters in there. So, and the funny thing is, some of these encounters, for example, Bob's, was 
a hard encounter and Cafe's was a hard encounter, but Bob's was significantly harder with the Marolith and the Vrocks. That was a very difficult fight. Versus Cafe's was just a vampire warrior and five vampire spawn. Both considered hard encounters, one of them significantly different than the other. But that's kind of something I like about D&D. Can, uh, it adds an element of uncertainty even for the DM. Anyway, who have I illustrated? So after Coles, I believe they did Elizabeth's, which was the maze at Good Enough. This was just, whenever we talk about Elizabeth, we talk about two things. We talk about her barbecuing the soccer players, which I thought about doing, and but I already had Zixia's battlefield taking place in Silva Secra. I didn't want another one. So... I, I decided to go with the maze at Good Enough because Elizabeth just sat down on the ground when she got there, refused to do the maze as soon as she realized it was one. Plus, you know, wizards and stuff. And yeah. Let's see. After that, I think was just Yavelda and Aneoli, which is kind of fun that those are the final two because uh, those two came into the campaign together. So Yvelda's already illustrated was the bagpipes and Aneole was the yin and yang symbol. And then they came out and then they had to figure out which gems go into which socket. Just as a review, the riddle was to every lock there is a key, to every key there is a hand. But hands must work in ordered flow from simple start to bitter end. They clued in surprisingly fast. They were At this point they totally knew that each of the rooms illustrated one of them and they knew which gem coordinated to which room. They also were able to clue in that the symbols had something to do with them as well. And it was just a matter of which symbol illustrated who. And I thought there would be a little bit of debate on this. However, they got it right away. Uh, I, I, and, and so the order was the order in which the player, the, the PCs joined the campaign. And to be fully honest, I wasn't sure if Elizabeth or Bob came first because we, we made those characters on the same night. They joined the campaign together. I actually had Elizabeth first. They ended up putting Bob's gem in first and I gave it to him. I wasn't going to split that hair. They ended up putting Bob's gem in first. I had Elizabeth first because the way I remembered it is we made Valerie's character uh, and then we made Bob's, but I wasn't sure if Anton had had Bob made ahead of time before we came to play D&D. Bob and Elizabeth were made with my very first D&D session. Anton made Bob, Valerie made Elizabeth, and I made Randy. The order, though, I didn't think was that important. I was just going to give it to them how they remembered that. Uh, the rest of it, though, was a lot more concrete. Zixia came next. Uh, so Elizabeth was the fire. So I, I did tie back to that other strong memory everybody had at Elizabeth of barbecuing the soccer players. So Elizabeth was a symbol of fire. Bob was the symbol of the sword, for the sword of truth. Zixia was the symbol of the owl, obviously for Fluffwick. Yvelda was the quill because her whole thing is gathering stories and writing them down. Aneoli was the scales. He had a character of balance between good and evil. Cafe was the cup because obviously Cafe and Java. You know, that one was a little on the nose. And in fact, that one that was probably the reason that was the easy clue that made all the other clues make sense. And then finally, Cole, the last character joining the party, was the ship, because he was a sailor. They put them in the right order, easy peasy, the final door opened.
they went in. It was kind of a lava-y volcanic room. There were hellhounds and a pit fiend that they had to fight. And the fight began. The pit fiend cast a wall of fire, and then Yvelda cast Feeble Mind on him. Eighth level spell. I know I've read it before. I had to review what it did. Basically, it brought his intelligence and charisma down to one, which made so he couldn't cast any more spells. At first, I thought, great, the fight's already over. But as I was reviewing it, I'm like, no, there's other monsters with an intelligence of one that can still totally fight. So he did. He, he continued fighting with his physical abilities, just not his um, magical ones, which definitely nerfed him. But it's an eighth level spell, so that's totally fair. Uh, it did take the wind out of my sails a little bit, but I got it back a, l a little while later when uh, Cole tried to shove the chinchilla down the pit fiend's throat. The pit fiend was able to spit it back out. Yes, it was starting to polymorph back. It did take one point of damage when it went into the back of the throat, and the pit fiend hurt a little bit spitting it out. But in my opinion, when something polymorphs back, it's not instant it's not like boom all of a sudden it's there it grows back a little uh at a speed that a creature can reasonably spit it back out uh cole broke the concentration as soon as the chinchilla entered the pit fiend's mouth and so the pit fiend was easily able to spit it back out there was a little bit of debate on if this worked or not or how reasonable it would be i feel pretty good about my decision i i thought that was fair. I, if I'd given them that, I think I would have been giving them too powerful of a tool. They would remember it for the next campaign, and I, I, I think it would have been too much. So I stand by that. I felt bad for kind of punishing their creativity because I didn't want to do that. I want them to be creative. I want them to try new things. But at the same time, I thought that was going to be a bit too too much a little too unrealistic so anyway now they had to fight the storm giant again this by this time the heat metal spell had worn off Yvelda had broken her concentration on it so he was full power uh, Cole I think brought him down on his own though so even though Cole was a little miffed that the chinchilla thing didn't work he did bring a storm giant down pretty much all on his own uh, Bob used his Horn of Valhalla and brought 15 Berserkers in, which was a nightmare to run. I hate it when he does that. <laughs> totally fair. He's totally allowed to, but man, is it boring. Because I've got, I had 15 NPCs that I had to, you know, have him roll attacks for one at a time. It took like 20 minutes to get through. It was painful. Really bogged the fight down. But at the same time, it also totally worked for them as far as, you know, winning the fight. Also, he wasn't going to have another chance to use it. This was the last final fight of a 20-level campaign. So I really can't fault anybody for using things like this as a kind of a last hurrah. So they eventually killed all the Hellhounds and the Pit Fiend and Zix... The, the gem rolled to Zixia's feet and she picked it up. I, I did that on purpose. I figured Zixia is the big role player of the group. And this was all kind of the cinematic part of it. 
and so I rolled it over to her feet because I figured it was going to play out in the most dramatically happy way possible than if it rolled to somebody else's feet. So she picks up the seed of the world, and the whole world around them fades to nothingness. Going forward, this is all just me talking. And I'll try my best to recapture the feelings. At this point, uh, the fight was over, and this was just kind of feel-goodness. And I think it was just a really nice moment for all of us players to just sort of have this, this ending scene. So everything faded to black. And they found themselves standing in a field, a plowed field. Gray. Everything was gray. The ground was gray. There were no trees or anything like that. It was just like everything, the color had vanished from everything. It was also a little bit transparent. Everybody gathered around the seed, and with a hand on it, they planted it into the ground. And all around them, a new world materialized. A beautiful song was singing and playing around them. And soon they found themselves standing on top of a high hill. To their right, what uh, what they were able to guess was to the east, was mountains. Beautiful mountains rising high above them. To their left, or in this case, to the west, was the ocean with a sun hanging over it. And they knew that they were in a new world. They were also all a little bit transparent, um, as if they weren't actually there. In front of them, another portal opened, and a group of elves stepped out. They were dressed in Roman-esque attire. There's really no other way to describe it. The lead elf, he had a purple cloak on, but he also had Roman-style armor on. They could see the Roman uh, helmet attached to his belt. And, of course, the characters, they didn't know that this was, you know, these were Romans or anything like that or that they had that style of clothing but the players did and I didn't really know how else to describe it other than that it was very Roman the lead elf approached them and started talking to them in a language that they did not understand he was uh, seemed to be asking them a question Uh, I, I should mention also before these elves showed up actually many other people did as well Hannah, Aowa, Jesse, Sir Timothy, Jay Show, Elizabeth, Aneole, Randy, they were all there. Uh, is the the man then cast or the elf cast a spell that seemed to be a comprehend language spell, and he then spoke to them in their own tongue. He asked them who they were, he told them that they had been promised this world, that he and his people uh, had lost their home and they were here. To establish a new one and asked you know if they would like to join them and Hannah turned to the players and explained that they had a choice they could move on to the next life with most of these or they could stay and help these new people begin a new world uh, Aneole Cole, Elizabeth, Randy, they all chose, oh, Cafe, they all chose to go on, to move on to the next life. Bob and his family, Elizabeth, or Zixia and Yvelda, 
chose to stay. And uh, the, the leader of the elves uh, was very happy about this and introduced himself as Gaius. Gaius Agrippa. Then some final goodbyes were said. And uh, Bob and his family, Zixia and Yavelda, left with these elves to begin anew and to live out the rest of their days. A little while later, uh, they noticed that on top of the hill were three tree or four trees. And then when Bob and Yavelda passed on, two more trees were appeared on that hill. They were silvery in bark, had pinkish leaves, and every time the wind passed through them, it made a, mag- a musical sound. The final scene was Zixia standing on top of the hill in her old age, leaning against the tree of Elizabeth's uh, that she figured marked Elizabeth, patting the, the roots, leaning against it, and taking her last breaths. And forever onward in this world, those seven trees on top of that hill were known as the seven entertainers because of the musical sound that would come through the trees. And also as a way for me to mark and to honor in all future campaigns the players of my very first one. And that was where we ended. That was the big the end. Um, I knew I wanted to give them an opportunity to stay behind and potentially have more adventures because I know some of the players were reluctant to say goodbye to these characters that they've spent so much time with. And so there's an opportunity for more to happen. Uh, if they want to write their own stories or maybe take their character with them to a different campaign for uh, another DM or something, you know, they have that opportunity that they're not dead. Uh, but for me, you know, the, these players, that campaign is done. That first world was very much a training ground for me. And I wanted to start a whole new one all over again. This new world is got a different philosophy. I put a lot more time and effort into the history, the culture, the government, all these different things. And I am very excited. I've already started my next campaign on it. I've made a lot of progress and I'm hoping to get done with it in the next couple of months. But I don't know. For right now, I'm just content to sit back and enjoy the satisfied, very fulfilling feeling of bringing these characters all the way through level 20 and having a satisfying ending. I think everybody was happy with it. They seemed happy with it. They said they were happy with it. Hopefully that's true. <laughs> I know I was really happy with the ending. And I think I think it was all just a really good experience for everybody. You know, it was a huge experience for me as a DM to be able to learn so much and also to experience players from level 1 all the way up to level 20. It gave me a really good idea of kind of power levels. The Dungeon Master's Guide describes the tiers of play and how those, like kind of what, what your players would be like in the world. You know, beginning they're like local heroes, then they're kind of regional heroes, and then they get to like master, and then they're legendaries. 
just legendary characters, people who will go on forever. And seeing them at those different tiers gave me a good idea of kind of what that looks like. And now when I go and review those descriptions, I have a better idea of what, what we're talking about. So as I design future campaigns, uh, I can get an idea of how far I, I want to go. For example, I think my next campaign will end around level 10, maybe a little bit later. I don't think I'm going to go above level 17 again for a while, if ever. I I just don't know. Like, I don't know if it was to my taste of D&D. It, I mean, they're super powerful and they're super... It, it was really cool to see all the things they could do, but I just don't know if I'm good enough DM to make those fights meaningful. I think what you really need is you really need an entire group or a majority of a group who's really focused on role-playing. The advice I've read and seen is that those high-level campaigns, it's not about if they can defeat the monster, because at this point there's not really anything they can't defeat. But it is a question of should they? It's a it's a question of meaning, you know. And and we've all played different video games, and we've got to that point where we're super high level. And if all we're focused on is defeating bad guys, then it's boring. But if we if we illustrate role playing, we illustrate about immersion and about stepping into the story, which is what story games like this, video games, D and D, I think it's what you know it's what they're all about. The combat is totally a theme. But if the combat's never meaningful, and that's the DM's job in part, is to create a story that explains why the players are fighting and why it matters. Even players who just love to fight and kill and loot and do all that stuff, eventually it gets boring for them if it's the monster's just there to just be there. If you're just going through a dungeon and here's the next monster, here's the next monster, here's the next monster you know, it gets stale after a while. And those high-level characters, in my opinion, that becomes more true than ever. Because there's really not anything you can throw at them that they can't defeat without it, and it sounding believable. You know, I had to put them in a pocket dimension of hell and make it the end of the world to throw these colossal monsters at them. And they cleaned house, no problem. So... I think it's going to depend partly on the group. I have a wonderful group who is so much fun to play with, uh, but only a small percentage of us, I think, really focus on really role-playing to the extent that I think a level 17-plus campaign really needs to make it meaningful. Uh, I mean, even if I threw a Tarrasque at them, which is totally possible, you know, it's... It would just be a big fight. It'd just be a big pillow fight. They hit, he hits. They hit, he hits. They hit, and it just takes longer because they've got more hit points. So, as a DM, you got to make fights meaningful. you got to make them matter. you got to have a story behind everything that's happening for the why. I'm realizing now it's not about telling a story through the players. It's about, more about telling a story through the villains. Giving the villains a story, giving the players meaning behind the villain you know what they're fighting and that's really all you need to do that's what makes it matter Uh, and that's easier to do at lower levels because the villains that you're throwing at them 
are more to scale with the rest of the world. You're not having to throw these pit fiends and storm giants and other things at them because these are super powerful enemies and they're not just walking around willy-nilly in your world. It just makes the world feel super unbelievable. You know, these villains need to be super special in their existence. And that takes a lot of background. And you can't do that a whole bunch of times to really sustain those high-level campaigns. Anyway, I'm probably beating a dead horse here. All I'm trying to say is I don't think I'm going to be doing this high a level of campaign again for a while. But at the same time, I'm really happy with how it ended. I'm really happy with my players. I'm really happy with the way they played this finale, with the way it all went. It was a lot of fun. There were some, there were some difficult moments, of course, but that's always going to be the case. And I'm really excited to introduce them to my new world. I'll give you a little tease. The world is called Ling Dilong. Ling Dilong. I kind of slurred my words there. And it is inhabited by people who once lived on Earth. All the magical races lived on Earth. Their ancestors lived on Earth at one time. As you clued in, the elves were Romans. They lived in Rome at a time. And there's a whole backstory and explanation for how that is. But the thing that will make this world unique is the languages. All the fantasy languages that you can read about in the player's handbook have a real-world equivalent. For example, the elves speak Latin. Uh, the gnomes speak Hindi. The, hob the halflings speak uh, Irish, I believe, or maybe it's Gaelic. I gotta go double-check my notes, but I'm pretty sure it's they speak Irish. And the races, or the dwarves, I believe, are Arabic. And that just reflects the, the people that these races were hiding with at the time that they were brought over to this new world. And I do have a whole backstory and everything about that, but that's just kind of something that's unique. And so when we play in this next campaign, you know, you can look up phrases or names or other things like that in those languages. You know, maybe you're... Uh, maybe your elf has a catchphrase and he says it in Elvish and you can actually look up what that would sound like and actually say that. Maybe you could look up an accent for your character or something like that. Now, many, many years have passed since these ancestors have come here. So it's totally reasonable for a dwarf to have a British accent. You know, the people don't necessarily just live with the, their own people. They maybe move around and stuff and they acquire different accents or a name from a different culture or whatever or something totally made up. That's totally fine. It's not necessarily, I'm not saying that that's locked in stone. But I'm really excited for it because I think it will help govern uh, the culture and some of the role playing and some of just the little details, which is something I really like uh, in a story. And I'm excited for it to see if you guys what you think of it as we get there. So the next campaign, which I'm working on, uh, will be taking place in my new world called Ling Dilong. And yeah, it will be called the Queen's Vault. That will be the name of the campaign. So last announcement, 
I think this is going to be my final podcast, at least my final session recap. I've enjoyed doing it, and my players have really enjoyed listening to it, but I want to focus on some different hobbies right now, particularly my writing of my campaign, and going forward, I want to part the curtain a lot less. I want to explain less of what's going on, and just sort of try to help my players have a more immersive experience. You know, I really, they really enjoy listening to kind of my process and the thoughts I've had of the session and all of that. But going forward, I'm going to try and keep that a little closer to my chest and just try and, you know, when they do things that throw me off to just sort of roll with it and sort of try not to break that illusion so much that everything is, you know, that the world is real and it's reacting to them. Plus, I think there might be a chance that if anybody who anybody listens to this who didn't play in the session might be kind of confused as to what's going on. Uh, I've listened to actual plays and I've listened to session recaps, and the session recaps are a little harder to follow because it's it's almost like you're listening to the story and you had to be there to really appreciate what was going on. So I'm wondering if maybe that's what's hap- what what might be experienced if anybody does come across this podcast who isn't one of my players um, or myself. My original motivation, as I've said before, was just a place so that I can have a record of what happened. And I've really enjoyed having that, and I definitely will look forward in future years to coming back and listening to this. But I think I'm going to keep those records in different ways going forward. And so, yeah, I think it doesn't mean I'll necessarily stop podcasting that this is the end of Dragons on the Table. I I might continue forward. Um, there's also a YouTube channel, Dragons on the Table, where I do Let's Plays, and it's really sporadic. I don't think I've uploaded anything for a while. Uh, I think Dragons on the Table is just going to be my social media presence, and it's really, really casual. So if I ever come up with another podcast idea, I'll just start it here. And yeah, for right now, you know, I'm, I'm not really, I, I'm, I'm good podcasting. I'm ready to turn to something else. I might turn to actual writing. I'm kind of considering starting a Wattpad account and writing some stories. But we'll see. For right now, I'm just going to focus on finishing up the writing of my next campaign, Uh, the Queen's Vault, and go forward from there. Anyway, guys, thank you so much. Really, truly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for playing through my campaign. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Thank you for being such amazing friends. I don't have a lot of nerd friends around me. In fact, I don't have any (laughs) right now. I've, I've got some family members, you know, siblings and cousins and stuff, but they're all different ages. This is This is where I get to talk about nerd things with adults. And I'm really grateful for you guys being my party, being my group. And I look forward to many more sessions with you all. Wish you all a happy uh, rest of your week. And I can't wait for Saturday.